this interview was so exciting. I can't wait to share it with you guys. The whole time I was just so transfixed. You know when you have that kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know what the word is. Like it was almost meditative. Um, so I hope you get that as well. This is with Noelle Collins, who is the curator of this year's Turner Prize. She has also worked in a bunch of other fascinating projects that she talks about later on. So I'll leave you to hear about that. I think it's such an interesting examination of what it means to be a curator. And I know a lot of you listening are either just people who love galleries and love being in those spaces, or you, you know, want to do it yourself or you already do. I don't know, but this is just a gem of an episode and I'm so glad to share it with you. It's just so exciting to be able to do all these episodes and on a much bigger scale than I had imagined for this series. So there's some very fun stuff in the works and I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. I am terrible at starting the recording way too late. And then it starts off with me being like, I loved your work rather than like, hi <laughs> and then going from there but I have so many questions to ask you because I think you have such an interesting job that like so many like a lot of our audience are people who kind of want to get into creative careers or they're at the start of a creative career or they're like you know studying or something like that and they they wouldn't necessarily know that you can do what you do because a lot of people ask about curators so when um, okay. your PR were like, would you want to talk to Noelle? I was like, yeah, yeah, I would <laughs> love to talk to a curator about, I mean, for the Turner Prize as well. It's just mm. very cool. So actually, do you want to explain what the Turner Prize is for people listening? Because I feel like I didn't really, like I knew, but then when I Googled it, it was so different than what I thought it was. Yeah, I think this is coming up because the name is so familiar. It's been in the media over many years, I think almost 40 years now. Um, so people will know the name of the Turner Prize Award, but they don't have the full details of it. Um, and I guess it has been changing a little bit in perception over that period of time as well. So essentially it is one of the world's leading prizes for contemporary art and it occurs every year i guess it's the um associated with tape britain it's kind of their baby and uh so yeah every year a panel of arts experts come together um and this year there was a jury of four people so there would be curators and directors of arts organizations and that would include Helen Nisbet, Cedric Folk, Melanie Keane and Martin Clark. So they would be very well known across the contemporary visual arts sector. And over the last year, they've been going out to see exhibitions, commissions and performances and putting together a list of artists that they feel are most deserving of the Turner Prize as an award. And I say award because there's a prize of £25,000 available to the winner. And so this year, uh, four artists have been nominated and they are Ghislaine Leong, Rory Pilgrim, 
Jesse Darling and Barbara Walker. And my role and the role of Towner is to present an exhibition of their work. And in a way, it's an opportunity for a much broader audience to see their work. And each of them have been nominated for an exhibition or a commission that they've had in the last year. So there's sort of already um, the material there. The artworks are existing for the most part. And then my role is to uh, see how we accommodate that at Town and Eastbourne. What do you, like, what's the very first thing when you see these artists that you have to kind of plan? Is it which, like, rooms you're going to use for which person? Is it something a bit more, like, holistic that a curator would think of first? I think... Um, the room allocation is certainly part of it, but I think even before we got to that stage, um, I was quite fortunate to be able to join the jury and Alex Farkson, who's the director of Tate Britain. So they had a meeting at the end of April this year to nominate the artists. And so I was able to hear each of the jury members sort of championing the artists that they wanted to nominate. So you're getting an insight into their work, you're revisiting exhibitions that uh, they've presented. And that's sort of where I start making notes about um, how we might convey that to an audience. And then, yes, definitely the next step then is to reach out to the artists because it's a really short space of time. You know, it's only five months or so from the point of them being announced to the point of opening the show to the public. And so I reach out to them, open a dialogue and start to build a relationship with the artists as much as possible, um, researching their past, pra their practice to date, essentially. Um, and then, yeah, inviting them to Eastbourne to come and see the spaces. And I have been told that that can sometimes be uh, quite a battle because I guess, you know, the element of competition is there. Every artist wants to maybe have the best position, the best space, the biggest space, the most well-lit. Um, and actually, for us, for me and our director, Joe Hill, we were talking about, you know, the suitability of the spaces. And we have slightly different gallery spaces across the three floors of the building. And so I had an idea of where I would like the artists to present work and very fortunately they completely agreed with me <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which was really good that we're off to a good start uh, so yeah they each of them visited independently they came to Towner we sort of introduced the history of Towner because we've been celebrating our centenary so Towner has existed for a hundred years uh, collecting and exhibiting work and I also wanted them to get a sense of who our audiences are because we're not in central London. Um, and in a way we have our local audience are incredibly faithful, loyal to us, coming in every single day of the week, essentially. Um, there's never a quiet moment. And there are lots of young families who are coming through the doors. There are lots of school visits. So it's sort of, I think helpful for the artists to see that audience coming through and to start thinking this this is the audience that's going to see my work here um it's not 
uh, it's not the same environment maybe as a commercial gallery. It's not an art fair. It's not an artist-led space. It is something different and it's a kind of public resource. That's such an important thing to talk about because I remember the first time I saw something that was uh, like Turner Prize related, mm. which was the um, oh forensic architecture. Wow. There, um, which is like obviously so important now and it really sticks with you because the the Turner Prize it is contemporary art that maybe people don't think of as art immediately sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. would that be like a right thing to say the kind of thing that potentially your granddad might go I could do that yeah <laughs> like, I think... yeah, annoyed. <laughs> I did I absolutely expected the conversation to be um that sort of it's a little bit hard at this point, but the is it art conversation. Mm-hmm. But so far, you know, we're getting hundreds of visitors coming through the door every day. And the response has been incredibly positive. And they're taking the time to sit with the video works, to listen to the artist interviews, to read the sort of catalogues and publications that we have there. Um, and it's really wonderful that there's that level of attention and appreciation to um you know what's happening in British contemporary art right now. But yeah, I think that's completely valid to say there are unexpected things in Turner Prize exhibitions. That's I guess part of the appeal as well for audiences is that there are going to be surprises in the gallery. And and yeah, we're delivering a few of those, but um it's also, I guess, there's always been an association with controversy. And I think that's maybe the business of the mainstream media. And it's not so much the business of the curator, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm interested in just sharing the work of the artists. And also, you know, gaining a greater understanding of it myself. Um, that's one of the joys of being a curator, is that artists are dedicating their lives to reading, researching, making work about particular topics. And when you come to put an exhibition together and work alongside artists, you're having to immerse yourself in similar topics um, and wide ranging topics. So, you know, you're always learning something new and that's what makes it incredibly exciting um, as a practice. Do you think that's some of the fun as well for the the general public like we're now at a point where contemporary art you stop and you go oh I I don't know what this is Mm. I want to learn what it is and then as a curator you get to kind of say like you said you get to show them the resources and the things that kind of connect them to it is Mm. it that that style has become more accessible or do you think it was always accessible and just that mainstream media was maybe hamming it up a bit Hmm. I think that's a very difficult question. I and it would probably take me a little while to figure that one out. But I would sort I would sort of see my role as like the bridge between uh sort of the artists and their practice and the public, the visitors who come to the gallery, um, the audiences. And I guess it. I don't want it to be didactic either it's we're offering you can come and you can just look at the show you can absorb things with your senses you don't necessarily 
have to read a catalogue to engage with an exhibition. I think I've often said you don't need to be an art expert to come to an exhibition and to appreciate it. And I think that's really important. Um, that there isn't that pressure there, that you don't feel like you have to answer a quiz or write a thesis after you've visited the exhibition. Um, because the experiences are so wide and varied. Um, so what we do is, and I would say specifically in the Turner Prize, there's just one introductory panel, just one text in the space that tells you something about the artist and something about the work. And they're really just starting points there. Um, entry points into the ideas that the artists are putting forward. And without over explaining, I guess. That's one of my favorite things about contemporary art. Like I remember when I started getting into it, there is that freedom where you're suddenly like, oh, because like if it's a portrait, there's so many details to it. And it is, there is so much to read into it. Mm. But the way you're kind of taught about going to a gallery is kind of like, you know, what does this pair mean when it's next to this person who had a lot of money in the past? And you're like, okay. Then modern art, you kind of feel, it feels like a collaborative experience almost between the the viewer and the artist. And that's very, I guess, freeing for people who, like you said, don't, you know, they're not in the scene, they're not artists. They just really want to turn up and enjoy the space you've worked in the biennale as well right for the the irish pavilion yes yeah i worked at um the irish pavilion in venice when the artist sean lynch was presenting work and i had i was still at that time actually i was working for ireland's biennial of contemporary art which is called eva international um and so, yes, I do have that experience of working in a biennial setting, uh, which is different, I guess. Yeah. What's yeah. The, the difference, you think? Well, both of those things were very different. Um, I think with Eva International, I started working with them while running an artist-led space. And the director at the time was Woodrow Carnahan, and I worked with him for probably five years. And... Yeah, I guess with Ireland Final with Contemporary Art at that time, we were showing work usually of 56 or 57 artists. So it's a huge group to be working with. And there was always a guest curator, usually someone of sort of international standing. Um, and maybe the last one I worked on was 2016 and the curator was Koyo Kuo. And Koyo was looking at sort of comparative colonialisms. So bringing her experience of being an international curator and engaging with artists who were making work in response to colonial histories from all around the world. And then looking at the sort of context of Ireland in its, uh, at that time it was the centenary year of the 1916 Rising or the Easter Rising as it's known. And without focusing so much on commemoration, but sort of bringing together these different examples and leaving it open also for audiences to make a uh, comparison or uh, correlations between these things that were happening globally, historically, and what the impact is in the contemporary moment. Um, so that experience, we were 
I guess, yeah, I had been working in artist-led spaces that were putting on exhibitions in vacant retail units around the city of Limerick. And the biennial also has that sort of energy where they take over these enormous industrial spaces. One is a former condensed milk factory with huge warehouses and refrigerated spaces. Um, and then they're transformed into galleries that are presenting often sort of AV works, photography, sculpture, you know, the full range of art forms. And it's also presented in partnership with museums and galleries in the city. So your more traditional spaces like the Hunt Museum or Limerick City Gallery of Art, which is like a municipal art gallery. Um, so there, yeah, there was just ferocious energy to all of those biennial presentations and, you know, a real sense of camaraderie across um, the visiting artists, the technicians, you know, the technical team delivering it and the biennial staff as well. What kind of artists from Ireland do you really love, like, recommending to people? Because I know, especially online right now, people, they just love the recommendations because okay. then they can really... I guess it gives them a really great starting point if they don't know something or if they have a little bit of access. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe Alva Nivrian is an artist uh, whose practice I've really admired. And it kind of started, I think, when she showed some work at the Biennial in Ireland in 2012. Um, it was a three-part video installation on monitors. And she's using a kind of technique of almost video collage and it felt all kind of spectral or ghostly uh, these apparitions that were imposed over um, sometimes like museum settings or abandoned building environments and I just thought it was haunting and beautiful and something that I wasn't seeing anybody else do and fortunately I was able to present some of her work at Towner in 2020, it's actually a, a tapestry piece um, and some sculptural installations. But yeah, I would definitely recommend people to look at her practice. Um, I mean, Sean Lynch is such a fantastic artist. He's a great kind of storyteller, researcher, writer. And I've worked with Sean and his wife, Michelle Hargan, um, in the past as well. And Michelle is a I don't, I don't know if you recall it. Um, she's a force to be reckoned with. Like her energy is incredible. They run an artist residency and they publish as well um, in a statement in contemporary arts. Uh, so that would be another recommend. And um, you try and recall. It's Neve O'Malley who was representing Ireland at Venice as well as another incredible artist. So I. I guess amongst those examples, a lot of them have been working in film, um, artist moving image. And yeah, so I'm all, often drawn to that as well. I wanted to ask you about that because some of the nominees this year for the Turner Prize work in film and video and the forensic um, architecture piece that I saw was also mm. video. Um, how would you explain that to people who are like less aware of that aspect of modern, you know, contemporary art, because I think at first it can seem, you might think, you know, film already exists, is that the same? 
but there can be these like really powerful pieces. Mm. I think it's also really broad. I mean, there's so much that happens in moving image and it's so incredibly different. And maybe photography as a comparison is interesting because you've got things like fashion photography and editorial work, but then you've got artists, you know, advertising a very commercial application. And maybe film is similar. And I think the lines are blurred more between um, maybe sort of mainstream feature film and cinema and artist practice, which it can be incredibly experimental and it's a a visual and audio experience in a way that's a little more abstract, Um, but it can also be based in documentary. So um, I I guess within the this year's Turner Prize exhibition, we are showing a video work by Roy Pilgrim. And again, this is a completely different way of working where uh, Roy works in collaboration with a lot of other people and often in communities. So Roy was commissioned by the Serpentine to work with the residents of Barton and Dagenham. And so the video that's a result of this sort of um, two to three years of engagement in the community, um, it's, it's almost like it's a document, it's a record of this process, it's part of an outcome, but it's, it's only a sort of small percentage, a sliver of the impact of that period of working um, with Green Shoes Arts and Barking and Dagenham Youth Dance. So we see the individuals from the community um, in their local environment, like in the parks, uh, gardens, um, in these various settings. And there are places where they found solace or through throughout the pandemic. Um, so the piece is called Rats and uh, Rory is setting forward the idea of a raft as a symbol of something that keeps us afloat in challenging times. And I guess, you know, one of those great challenging times was the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but it sort of opens up ideas of, you know, how we how creativity and art can help us um, in those moments of crisis. And I think the, the outcome is incredibly beautiful. Uh, Rory plays piano and harp. So a large part of this film is... A seven song oratorio. So we're getting these seven songs that are written in collaboration with individuals in the community and other singers and performers. And yeah, it's just a, it's again, it's a different way to work with moving image. And alongside this sort of set video piece, the commission itself, there, there's also documentation of the live performance that was realized at Cadogan Hall. So yeah, I guess it's a good example because it crosses into all of those sort of the more creative side of things. There are dance performances in there, there's animation, but then there's also this documentary element to it. Yeah, that your analogy about um, photography, I just, I love, like, you know, when someone explains something and you feel like the the puzzle pieces kind of click, mm. I just had that. I will now be quoting that to everyone to sound very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> be like you know <laughs> there was did you see the biennale last year 
I did, yeah. I think it was, was it the the Dutch or the Belgian pavilion where they had the videos of the children playing? Oh, that's right, yeah. I love that one. Yeah. And my brother and I stayed there for so long because it was just so, so like the listeners, basically they had different videos on different screens around the space of children playing across the world. And it was just so interesting to see that kind of comparison and how powerful that can be mm. and like the different development throughout those videos in comparison yeah but I think at the at kind of at the core of that mm-hmm. series of videos was the idea of play and I think that's something that's so relatable you know you don't again you don't have to be a critic an artist curator to connect with that um I think you can you can see that sort of a similar audience response to Roy Pilgrim's exhibition as well. You know, I think. Yeah. And I guess I've been working at Towner for seven, almost seven years now, and developing or well, developing strategies almost to um, make audiences feel comfortable within the space where we're showing moving image has been one of the challenges of that that time um because i think there are often presentations of moving image that require completely black box space and that can be so incredibly intimidating to audiences and i've certainly presented a few of those mm-hmm. and I, they're usually they're works that have a gravity to them and they have a seriousness to them and they require that kind of space and we want the best quality of projection and we want the best sound and all these technical things. Um, but what was interesting about working with Rory is that Rory wanted to create a space that was warm and open and inviting. And so, you know, that challenge was like, how are we going to get our projection to work? And I and keep that warmth in the space. Um, and we kind of achieved that through uh, putting in a sizal carpeting and developing Roy designed a, a sequence of lighting in the space. So there's these warm pops of like peachy pink, uh, washes of color throughout the screen. That's very cool. Because sometimes in those spaces, you can, like from a practical standpoint, you can find yourself sort of like scrambling in the dark <laughs> around a bunch of other people. You have to, yeah, you have to wait <laughs> yeah. for your eyes to adjust. I think that's the main thing. Maybe there should be some signage outside that says, just wait. For your eyes to adjust before you move any further. Um, I guess the um, 180 solution is just to have everything dark mm-hmm. and then you've already adjusted. You know, like at, when you go around 180 studios and then you have the the descent. <laughs> no, that sounds m- like much more um, engaging, I guess, and very interesting to plan because you also have Barbara Walker stenciled like onto the wall how did you manage that because that got me thinking about the space so much when I saw it Mm. yeah so Barbara is showing work that's from a series called the burden of proof and it's actually the full um series to date the full body of work is being presented and so there are 10 framed drawings um large-scale drawings on paper but then there's one enormous wall a white wall in the gallery space and Barbara has drawn five monumental figures 
on that wall and she she hasn't stenciled it she's drawn it by hand and so she worked with us um i mean god bless barbara she came in and she worked in two weeks she made those five enormous drawings um she worked incredibly hard you know and in a way it's uh there was this balance between like knowing when to come and have a conversation so sort of the start of the day we would have a check-in and a, a chat and she's incredibly articulate and open about her practice and the reasons of why she's making a particular series of work and so we had these great conversations and then she'd just be ready to go she'd be up on a ladder or a scissor lift um drawing for hours on end and then at some point maybe around three o'clock in the afternoon I might have another pop in and a chat with her um but yeah it's this really phenomenal body of work and Barbara has had a, a very sustained engagement with kind of the topic of race and representation um power and you know, the sense of a sense of belonging and in this series She's been bringing visibility to individuals who've been affected by the Windrush scandal. So the five figures who are drawn onto the wall, um, these are drawings of individuals, sitters that she's been working with, um, and they've been sharing their stories and experiences with her. Then those sort of framed drawings on the wall, they're a combination of portraits of these same five individuals um, that are sort of overlaid on top of uh, documents that have been gathered and these are the kind of documents that prove one's right to remain in the UK so she's drawn the documents as well you know they're, they're not a print it's a hand-drawn facsimile let's say well I didn't realize that she would go in and actually draw it on the wall like what mm. do you what do you do with that afterwards like how are you do you just have to paint over it or do you like remove what do you do? Barbara's taking care of that for us because <laughs> part of her practice is that with these wall drawings, these huge wall drawings, is that she erases them at the end of the exhibition. So she it's like she physically washes them off the wall herself. Um, wow. And I know like in her artist interviews, there are these small short video pieces um, that have been produced with Tate interviewing each of the artists. Um, you could see her working in the space. There's some footage of her doing those drawings. And, but she also talks about the erasure and that when she even begins to put the charcoal out of the wall to draw them, it's sort of a process of saying goodbye or letting go of them because she knows they're going to be erased and it's temporary. Um, so, and I think our visitors have also really been picking up on that. And they're a little overwhelmed by the idea that you could make these uh, such physical works, like incredibly beautiful drawings, but then come back to wash them away from the walls. And that has, you know, an emotional weight to it. Um, but I think it, it really, it, it strikes people to the heart. It's a very, it feels emotional as a viewer also. I mean, it's such a powerful statement on what she's talking about as well, you know, with yeah. Windrush and everything. Like, it's even more shocking that people had their citizenship just kind of erased. And then, yeah, wow. 
is it very exciting when you get to talk to these artists about their thinking and you get to see them sort of setting everything up do you like talk to them sort of like you were saying with Barbara do you sort of like have you talk to them for a little bit they set up or do you find yourself talking to them throughout the process you know throughout the day I think if I was working with one artist on a solo exhibition we usually have like a two to three week period of install and some of that is just making the space ready for the artworks to come or sometimes the artworks are or the artists are making things on site as well. Um, and if it were one artist, I try to spend as much time as possible in the gallery. Um, because you're sort of, you're in a role that you're communicating to the technical team as well. So it's, it's, a, it's yeah, it's multifaceted what's happening in the space during those two weeks and, uh, it's exciting. It's got a lot of energy around it. There's a lot of fun, um, a lot of jokes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of stressful deadlines, but you know, a lot of humor as well. And um, we have a really great technical manager, Sam, and he helps to coordinate all of those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's probably some of my, fa my favorite parts of the work are, you know, being in the spaces and developing that. But, because the Turner Prize is for solo exhibitions, I was spread a little thin. I couldn't stay in each of the spaces for very long. Um, I was kind of running around from the ground floor up to, from Ghislaine's space to Rory's to Barbara's to Jessie's, um, and just getting called into doing different things and meetings and yeah. So it was a different experience, I guess. And also I would say, for a solo exhibition, I'm normally working with an artist over two years, probably. Um, just, you know, keeping in touch over that period. We're not on the phone every day. Um, and getting to know them and, you know, being able to be in the position where you can suggest something for the show and you feel that it chimes with and it has a harmony with the way that they're working and it feels like an appropriate suggestion. That takes a lot of time to get to that position. Um, so yeah, it was uh, a sort of a huge undertaking to work across those four spaces. Um, but it was, yeah, wonderful to be able to get to know all of the artists and to see their shows taking shape. And I would say, actually, Jessie Darling made like a lot of work on site to accompany existing pieces that were coming in for the show was adapting pieces in the space. So for Jesse, the gallery space operated as a studio or a workshop almost for at least the first week of his install. And then the second was more to do with um, finessing, placing, lighting, labeling, all that sort of thing that comes later. Um, and I think you get that feeling in, the, in Jesse's exhibition. There's a kind of energy of that comes through the work. It feels almost like it's it's being made in this um a collision or something, you know, <laughs> there's an energy to the immediacy of things being made. Um and you know, you, you kind of can't fake that. That it just has to happen during the install. And that's a very different way to working. I guess normally we have um more sort of detailed 
floor plans, lists of works, etc. And we had certainly had lists of works of existing things that were coming in, sculptures that had been shown in the two exhibitions that Jesse was nominated for. But then Jesse was also sort of uh, energetically charged by coming in to make the Turner Prize exhibition in Eastbourne and was looking at uh, for location um, being in the context of showing work in a seaside town in England. Um, and so it's sort of coming in and welding pedestrian barriers into these uh, animation sort of shapes in the like in the gallery space just before you know you know a week before we were open so I wanted to ask you about that one so badly because I think it was the one that when I first saw it I was like what is this mm-hmm. <laughs> and like hearing you talk about it is just amazing do you mm-hmm. think not just with Jesse's piece but also with Jesse's piece do you think working as a curator kind of changes your relationship with space like what is that how do you feel about I, that it's funny because I I can't walk through a town or a city without lingering around like vacant spaces and imagining them as galleries but that comes from the sort of artist-led project spaces that that's sort of part of my past and it's really funny because I, you know, I meet a lot of other curators who are doing the same thing um, or have a similar background. And yeah, so when we see a vacant retail unit, we're like, hmm, someone needs to put a project in there. We need to put an exhibition on or create a studio or something. Um, so yeah, I do think it changes somehow your relationship to space. But also, I would say our galleries, uh, it, it was very probably quite challenging as well for our artists to get their heads around what the gallery spaces would look like. Because in the top floor, we've got the, you know, it's purpose-built gallery, um, huge spaces, five meter high ceilings. But they were coming to do their site visits when we had the Barbara Hepworth exhibition on. So we had a different structure, like there are temporary walls, there are floor plinths. Um, and I'm trying to convey to them how that space might look once it's all deinstalled. These walls are going to come out, new ones will go in to sort of make the, the split of spaces on the top floor more evenly balanced between Jesse and Barbara, you know, so it's fair that everyone's getting a similar footprint. Um, and that's, it was difficult, I think, for them to try and imagine that. And, so there's a lot of trust also in uh, what we can achieve with our technical team in those spaces. And I think, you know, they did a phenomenal job, both artists and tech team in in kind of realizing that. Um, yeah, and it's surprising sometimes that, you know, we might use a printed two-dimensional floor plan to map out, a, you know, totally immersive exhibition <laughs> uh, full of three-dimensional sculptures and things like that um or we can use like a sketch of like sort of 3d renderings but you ha- sometimes you just have to come to the space and see it and yeah so there is a yeah you do develop a slightly different relationship with space i guess is what i'm saying and it takes all kinds of um gathering of information and visualizing to try and grasp what it will eventually look like and even then 
you're going to be surprised by something I guarantee it I love the idea of you standing in spaces in cities and everyone's like what's that what's she doing there just like watching out their windows and you're like I would put this here yeah (laughs) I think our front of house team must sometimes think I've lost my mind because I <laughs> I would go up into the Barbara Hepworth exhibition and just stand there and I'm looking at the walls uh, and you know I'd say hello and I'm having a chat but then I'm looking and sort of my eyes are drifting and I'm trying to imagine you know what would it be like if we put a wall there um, I'm totally uh, I'm there on a I'm on a different task I'm not there to absorb <laughs> the exhibition it's kind of it's funny yeah when I was maybe like seven, we had to do this school project of like reimagining our town. Mm. And you just sort of like made me realize that every project that every kid did had these like huge art installations. Oh. And also theme parks. It was like a combination. <laughs> <laughs> we have a theme park, but they were also like, we just need more of that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you want art and somehow you want exhilaration as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the two are probably linked. Like, like I think for kids especially, like it is very exciting when you're out and about and you see art in the the public Victoria Richardson for the Herzog and De Morin, which I'm probably saying wrong exhibition mm. about architecture. And that definitely changed my perspective on that whole relationship between art in the public space. Mm. Do you have any projects that like you've seen with public space that kind of, I guess, explained how you see the world as someone who shares art with people? I mean, one of the most transformative sort of public art pieces that I've worked on was with, and it's actually very, uh, in a way it's, I don't know, it's very close to the gallery in that it is the full exterior of the Towner Gallery. It's painted um, in these geometric, vibrant shapes. And this was a commission with Lothar Goats that was sponsored by brewers who are, I guess people will be familiar with them, they're painting and decorating stores across the country, but they were founded in Eastbourne, so there was that local connection. And Loter makes these incredible paintings. Sometimes they're small scale works on paper, canvas board. Um, but he also does wall paintings that are very site specific and responding to the architecture of the spaces in which they sit. And he's done them at uh, Leeds Art Gallery and Pallant House. And they're absolutely beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, there was an open call uh, for proposals on how we would treat the exterior of the town or building to celebrate our, I think it was our 10th birthday. And uh, yeah, Loter won the open call, won the, the commission. And his commission has just been so transformative. It has changed how people perceive the gallery, the space, the building. Um, and Loter talks about it. Uh, in this incredible way as the, the building kind of becoming an artwork. So the gallery itself, the, the three-dimensional form of the gallery is an artwork that's sort of in the exhibition of the, the landscape or the town around it. Um, and I, 
I mean, it's a stunning building to begin with, but Loder paid very special attention to how light falls across the building, across the different um, windows, doors, openings across the, the external skin of the building and sort of tweaked the design to reflect this. And it's called Dance Diagonal. And it elicits these sort of very physical responses from people passing by. You see a lot of children will start skipping as they're going along. <laughs> um, and we've had uh, a huge response, I think, across uh, social media as well. So it lives sort of in the digital space as much as in the physical space of each one. Um, and it was just a really important commission because, as I said, it sort of transformed the building. But it, it communicated something to people as they were walking down the road. It says something about what's happening in the building inside, um, that we're an art space, that something creative is in here. And yeah, so it's just, it's had a profound effect, I think, on so many aspects of, you know, how maybe like how we approach the building as well. It brings joy to us as a team coming into work. But I think it's seen the response of the public because people visiting um, has been incredible, really remarkable. It definitely feels like, you know, in like kids shows and stuff, when people open a box and then like all this like color or whatever comes mm. out, like it's just so stunning when you see it and you do immediately think, I want to know what's happening in there. Like I, you, it opens, like it invites people mm. in and it like you're saying it opens what's going on inside mm. even if you're like you know on your way to work or doing something else is there something about working in a seaside area like you said with Jesse Darling like he's incorporating that kind of aspect because mm. I know that there are a few points in the UK like art communities that are all related to that coastal aspect mm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Towner holds a collection of about 5,000 works and or location has been something that's really informed and driven that collection, uh, responding to being on, like on the coast, on the periphery, right out on the edge and sort of look, and certainly in recent years, the idea of like looking at the, the possibility of a wider world, um, how we connect sort of internationally, um, how we consider topics of and subjects of borders, territory, things like this, um, but also migration, um, migratory stories and histories. Um, also, but engaging with things like the, the materials of the locale, so the chalk and the South Downs, um, experiences of nature all of these things are sort of feeding back into the kind of work that's collected uh, for Eastbourne for the audiences here um, at Towner and yeah so I think it shapes our program in a really interesting way and artists who come and are commissioned to make work will often pick up on maybe taking walks out into the downs and somehow this will inform their response or their the results, the outcomes of those commissions. Wow. I wanted to ask you about um, Glane's work. Mm. Like Jesse's, 
I feel like I, I mean, if I was stood there, maybe I would have a completely different reaction, but yeah, I want to learn so much more about what that's about and what's the water aspect mm. of Yeah, of <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. So Ghislaine Leung is showing work on the ground floor and when we were talking about spaces, I was kind of thinking about Ghislaine's space because it has this polished concrete floor. Uh, we have sort of exposed concrete beams and ceilings. There's natural light coming into the space. Um, and it has a sort of different shape to some of our gallery spaces. It has a bit of a curve that reflects, you know, the architecture you can see on the exterior. And I felt that Ghislaine's work could sit really well in that space. Um, so Ghislaine is working in this way, or she's developed what it can be considered a fairly radical process of art making, um, producing what she describes as score-based artworks. And so the, I guess the emphasis on score is, um, is that it's a, it's a text score. If the score becomes a description, a text-based description that can be sent out, you know, it can go to a gallery anywhere in the world. And Ghislaine gives, you know, a lot of, um, creativity almost and inter open interpretation to the gallery in order to deliver or perform the work. That sounds fairly abstract, but maybe an example is quite useful. So the water that you're talking about comes from a piece called Fountains, and the score for that work is along says something along the lines of um, a fountain installed in the exhibition to cancel sound. And, and so, you know, when you receive the score, um, that's your instruction. And the outcome is developed in conversation with Ghislaine. So um, I, she was nominated for an exhibition at an artist-led space called Simeon in Copenhagen in Denmark. And she had presented five scores there, so five score-based works, and we're presenting the same five scores, but they look quite different in many cases because they are shaped by the context of the space in which they're shown. And that's a big part of her practice. It's sort of testing the boundaries of exhibition spaces, um, the sort of standard way of how we might put on an exhibition, the, the rules that we have to follow, like for emergency exit and like the sort of tedious details and practical details of um, exhibition making. And she has a great understanding of this because she has worked in art institutions herself. And so, yeah, this comes into her practice. And with the fountain piece, when it was shown in Copenhagen, that gallery space was sort of a subterranean space. It's underneath a, a body of water, like a public pond or a lake. And uh, they were able to redirect the water through the roof into the space. So it was coming down almost like a water waterfall. Um, but they had openings in the ceiling. They had a sort of drain grate in the floor. They had the right sort of incline so that the water would naturally drain away. Um, and it was shown sort of on a, a time, a timer. And in a way, I remember being in touch with the curator and saying, like, I think all the right decisions were made for your space. It's incredible. And then like the kind of interesting part of the Turner Prize is, yeah, the artist has had that solo show and they've been nominated for it. And now you're sort of, in a way, trying to reimagine it for Towner, where we don't have a lake above the gallery. Uh, 
we don't have a drain that's going to filter away a massive waterfall. Um, so it was interesting to have like a first site visit and the first few conversations with Gillian because she was saying, actually, it's not really about the spectacle of the work. You know, I mean, that's, you know, curators can decide how they want to present it. Um, but for her, the most interesting thing and the priority in that score is the audio, it's the sound. And when you see the fountain that's at Town in Eastbourne, they, we've selected a kind of uh, more of a classic fountain presentation, I guess. It's like a, a jet of water that's about two or three metres high. Um, and it's also circular, so it's coming back into a, a reservoir or a tank that's surrounded at the base. But you're hearing that work far before you see it. So it the sound of the fountain permeates the whole space and probably a little bit into the space next door. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's quite dramatic and it's a really interesting intervention. Um, so I was talking about, you know, with the, the Turner Prize, you can find surprising things in the exhibition spaces. And Ghislaine is also interested in how there it's the crossing over or the enmeshing of these sort of public spheres and how, you know, there's an interesting sort of reference to how water fountains are used in public parks to reduce the impact of traffic noise. Um, and so, you know, there are so many references happening and they're very layered. And uh, there are four other scores that are presented alongside the fountain. And one of them is a, a sort of painted grid on the wall that's called Hours. And this grid is representing sort of every hour in a seven day week. And within the grid, there is a sort of section that's blacked out, a small, relatively small section. And uh, this represents the hours that Ghislaine can dedicate, dedicate to time in her studio. So it's her art practice time. And so she's sort of making this comment about all of the other roles and responsibilities that we have in our daily lives that we have to fulfill and require certain support structures and able to be able to do that. And then there is this sort of um, small segment of it that is truly uh, time that can be focused and dedicated to uh, studio and artistic practice. And yeah, it helps to put things in perspective, I think. And a lot of uh, writers, a lot of journalists have sort of picked up on the fact that Ghislaine is also a modeler, and yes, that is part of it. Um, but it's you know it's one of those responsibilities that she has. It's a very important one. But you know she's also writing, teaching, um, being a partner, being a daughter, all of these things. And I think that's really interesting work for people to engage with, as maybe the first score that they look at from Ghislaine. Um, and it's directly in front of you as you enter the gallery space. It's such a cool concept. Like, that is just so exciting. So when I read score, I was like, okay. Mm. Like, I, I wonder what that entails. But that's just, like, genuinely thrilling, the idea that that kind of relationship is happening with the gallery. I guess it also gives the general public a better sense of what you do, you mm. know, like that relationship that you have with the artist do you think that or is it such a unique kind of experience I think it's there and you know I think Ghislaine is putting that forward um I think there's a 
portion of audience who will certainly see that. Um, but the wider audience, I, they're going to bring their own experiences to seeing the works and their own interpretations to it. And they could be, you know, completely different to what we set out to achieve, <laughs> which I love and it's really fun. Um, but yeah, there's, there, there's so much in the work that I think requires further investigation, you know, um, and a lot of it will be unspoken and unwritten. People aren't necessarily going to know that decisions are being made in exhibitions because of things like fire exits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think when you set out to become an artist, I doubt that that's uh, kind of top of your priority list. Um, but for public spaces, it is really important. You know? Yeah. What is your favourite Turner Prize winning piece or artist and their work from over the years oh god I think that's a really difficult question um I don't think I can say I think part of my role is sort of I can't have any favorites um (laughs) I think it would be difficult like hmm. I'm trying to remember the some of the Turner Prize exhibitions that I visited and uh I think one one that stood out because we went to we traveled to um Tate Liverpool to see the exhibition last year. We traveled to Coventry the year before that. And I guess one of the sort of the key Turner Prize that always stands out in my mind was actually uh was probably Turner Contemporary. Um you had Helen Kamak, who is an incredible artist presenting her video works, Lawrence Abrahamdan, Tai Shani and Oscar Murillo. And it was the year that they sort of all joined together and they won together, I guess is how you might describe it. Um yeah, and I thoroughly enjoyed that exhibition. Um but yeah, I could I could talk all day about, you know, exhibitions that I've loved. <laughs> I've lost track of time listening to you. Like I checked the time and I was like, I would have had no idea like it's just so enthralling to hear you talk about it for sure I think the last thing I wanted to ask you is what advice would you have for people who want to do what you do I guess there there are just many many paths to working as curator I think there's no one right way to do it um and I came to it through art practice so I studied fine art painting initially um, and then I was involved with running artist-led spaces and projects and I think it's I, I, I would say getting out and going to see as much art as possible that's always good <laughs> um, that's a, I think that's fairly a, a fairly common opinion that you need to be going out and visiting exhibitions um and you could need to want to be going out to visit exhibition <laughs> you know uh it, it takes a you have to be self-motivated and you, i think curiosity is sort of top of the agenda as well if you're curious about um artistic practice installations the broader arts actually um that's a really good indicator that you can draw on all of those different influences in a, in a future curatorial practice. Um, 
I also I would say probably writing is also a really good exercise. I probably don't do enough of it myself, but um, I think yeah, that's probably my. Those are my two top tips. Yeah, they seem quite straightforward, but um, yeah, getting out to see exhibitions is really important. It's still really important to my practice now, and it just opens up uh, all the possibilities of like how the installation is realized, but like whose work are you going to encounter? And this is how I get to know artists. Um, and if you can, you know, look out for opportunities to deliver your own curatorial projects. Uh, we've had a number of students who've been on placement with us over the years at Towner. And what I normally say to them is, you know, you might find that there are many graduates who are coming to interview or apply for work as a curator or even take on project-based uh, opportunities. And they may all have, maybe they all have the degree and everyone looks quite similar on paper. But if you can get real world experience or be self-motivated, organize with your friends to do something. I mean, that to me is, that speaks to someone's ability to put things together, to organize. Um, and that's a, an incredibly important part of the, the job as well. Like the role as a curator in a public gallery or museum, there's a huge amount of administration um, logistics, planning, troubleshooting, sort of uh, problematizing things. And to have some experience in delivering a project is really desirable. It doesn't have to be huge, but um, that will kind of set you, uh, make you stand out, I guess, from a wider field of candidates. That was so informative. Like, like genuinely, I ask this question to so many like people across different fields, and the answers are always so varied. Like, they're all helpful. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're a lot more abstract, but that was like genuinely things that people can do. Yeah. Listening I, mean, I think I'm I'm a fairly pragmatic person, so <laughs> I think my response uh, echoes that for sure. Well, you've got to think about the fire exits. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's only one thing you take away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, next time I'm in a gallery with someone, I'll be like, "Did you know?" I know. No, please don't. <laughs> it's well, a consideration, why? but I think you know, having <laughs> having open conversations with the artists and getting to know their work is probably higher up on the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll try and remember that. <laughs> keep it in mind. I just wanted to ask why the writing part. What is it about writing that is so helpful? Hmm. I guess, you know, talking and writing, um, it helps you to form your ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I put, actually, it's, sometimes it's the only moment when the sort of swirling soup of ideas in your imagination has to be set down in black and white text. And yeah, I find that it helps, it helps me hugely if I'm having to put forward an idea to sort of communi communicate my ideas with somebody else. Um, writing is the way to go but yeah I think just it's part of curatorial practice um even it's not really even I'm not really focusing on publishing that writing it's just useful for you as a tool what is your favorite gallery I feel like I have to ask this now because I'm just so intrigued what's my favorite gallery mm, I don't know 
should I just say maybe Galway Art Centre because I'm from Galway in the west of Ireland and it was probably one of the first gallery spaces that I ever entered so yeah I'm gonna go with them. <laughs> a good one. I'll yeah. have to go. Well thank you so much genuinely I am so glad we did this early in the day like I'm I feel ready to go and carpe the diem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it's a good way to start the day, isn't it? Oh, a lovely way. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Getting to hear you talk about art is like the best. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to see the exhibition myself, like, and mm. actually get there and everyone else to, to go. I'm basically going to force everyone I know to get their asses down to town. Yeah. Like, what an opportunity. Well, I think this is one of, I mean, this is the beauty of Turner Prize. Is this exhibition all of those four artists presenting their works it's completely free at Tarnia. Um so I'm hoping the broadest possible audience is able to access it yeah it sounds like you've already done such a great job at making sure that happens like if mm. people are bringing their kids that's mm. already such a great sign mm. I feel like that was a good enough uh, explanation of why you should go and see the Turner Prize for yourself. I have not. I did all of my research um, very close to the interviews, so I was looking at all the pictures and everything, but now I feel so prepared to head on down to Eastbourne and go to the town gallery and just really get stuck into it. I loved the only Turner Prize uh, exhibition that I've been to, and I think I am going to endeavour to make it a sort of staple of my year from now on because it is such a fascinating project. I mean, you guys know the Damien Hirst shark in whatever resin, you know, you guys remember that. We all remember that one. And Tracy Emmons, my bed as well. So they have very interesting pieces um right now in light of everything that's going on politically that we're all really watching very closely i would recommend looking at um, forensic architectures piece um because they do some really important work on uh political propaganda and all of that and i think uh yeah it's an interesting time right now and I would be remiss not to talk about it on here, I guess. Um, so do check that out and go enjoy some more upbeat art as well, but we really can't ignore um, such an astounding situation that I feel like the whole world is really caught up in right now. This podcast is not a huge platform right now, but anything... Um, that we can do to kind of um, remind ourselves of our humanity and what it means. I think art is a really vital part of that and I think getting yourself into artistic communities can only do, you know, some real good for us. There are a really great amount of other curator interviews that we have. Um, Marta Franceschini on the podcast or... I talked about Victoria Richardson for the Royal Academy, which is on the site, sanclemente.co.uk. There's a lot, and I love 
talking to curators so much. Sangeeta Data for the BFI was one of the first interviews that I did and it's still one of my favourites because these people give you just a beautiful insight into works that we can see and we can look at um, and sometimes we just, you know, you just get a real expert insight is what I'm saying in a very convoluted way. So please do look at those interviews as well, especially if you want to go into that as a career. Um, Victoria had some good advice. Marta is a fashion historian and I recommend her interview a lot because it is a really interesting interview in general and it gives you a really good insight into getting into that kind of career. The next episode will be with Sean Hughes, who was longlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, I'm going to do a two-parter for that one because it was long, because we did not stop talking. It was amazing. We talked about ghost stories. We talked about folklore. We talked about grief, postpartum depression, how to become a writer, great advice, everything. So really throw yourself into that one. Um, I loved that too. I'm really enjoying the interviews at the moment. I've done quite a few and some of them for later for the next series. I even have one booked for eight months away, but I feel like I've told you about that already. I don't know. Anyway, I will see you uh, for Sean's episode, or you can go to my TikTok, or you can go to the site. There's stuff all over the shop. Hello, this is actually me from a couple of weeks after I recorded that. And I just wanted to say that I spoke to the operations director at Forensic Architecture, Sarah Nankerville. She was so incredible to talk to. We talked about her project, Living Archaeology in Gaza, and it was so important to learn about. There is so much going on in terms of the destruction of heritage. So give that a listen. Um, it's really important work. Go look at their website. There's also a bunch of links in the show notes of that episode as well.